0: If you would, take your Bible, turn with me back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, where we left off last week. We're studying this great section in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. We began last week, Lord willing, we'll finish next Sunday on Christmas Eve. You know, in our world, when a human being wants to distinguish himself as great, particularly in the area of wealth, He surrounds himself with important people and objects of great value as a signal to the rest of the world that he is to be highly esteemed. This is one of the reasons that kings have traditionally built palaces. The grandeur and excess of those palaces are a symbol or they're supposed to be a symbol of the king's wealth and his power. It's something that's always stood out to me in reading the scriptures. When I come to 1 Kings chapter 10, there's a description there of how the queen of Sheba responded when she saw the wealth of King Solomon's palace. If you read there, beginning in verse four, it says when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, His cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men! How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom! Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Take notice of some of the things the Queen of Sheba pays attention to there. She notices that how distinguished Solomon's servants are. He, she notices the status and even the appearance of his servants. She pays attention to his waiters, those who are waiting on them as they eat and even the attire of the waiters. She takes note that even those, these servants who were in the lowliest of positions in his house are dressed better than even the wealthy outside The palace walls and the cumulative effect of his wealth and his wisdom leads her to say there's there's no more spirit in me it's almost as if she was ready to faint what I want us to see is that the wealth and the power of an individual can often be measured by the grandeur of those who serve him Think of it this way, if, if a man were to pull into a restaurant and you were there waiting to be seated, a nice restaurant, and he pulls into the valet parking with a very luxurious car, you assume that he's probably a man of some wealth. But what if the same man shows up in the same luxurious car but he has a chauffeur that's driving him and he's in the back seat? You say, well, he's probably a very wealthy man. What if the same man though shows up in the same car with the same chauffeur, but he also has another man that sits in the passenger seat and his full-time job is to get out and open the door for the man to get out from the back seat. Say, wow, that guy's really wealthy. But what if the same man shows up in the same car with the same valet and the same door opener, but with four other cars around him as bodyguards who all get out of the car at the same time to open the door for this man? Now you're wondering who's in that car, right? Who is this? I want you to understand that that's why we are studying the birth story of John the Baptist. It's because John's purpose in life was to prepare the way for and to point to the Messiah. In the same way that the, those around that wealthy individual are the servants of Solomon made others take note of the magnificence of Solomon. The ministry of John the Baptist with all of its power and its grandeur, John himself said was for the purpose that you would understand one was coming after him by John's own admission that he said, I'm not even worthy to untie that man's sandals. That's the idea. That's, the why this Christmas, that's why this Christmas season, we're taking so much time to look at the birth narrative, the historical account of the birth of this man, John the Baptist. And it's really to unfold this great theme that God undeniably validates John so that we might confidently believe in Jesus. God validates John for the purpose of giving us faith in the one he came to point to. Let's read the verses we studied last week. This is Luke chapter one, verses five to 13. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him "'Standing to the right of the altar of incense. "'Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel "'and fear gripped him. "'But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zacharias, "'for your petition has been heard "'and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son "'and you will give him the name John.'" Now this historical account, as we saw last week, breaks down into several scenes. We started with scene number one, the setting in verses five to seven. This happens during the reign of Herod the Great, and the two primary characters we're looking at is this man, Zacharias, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, also from a priestly family from the bloodline of Aaron. These are, by God's own admission, righteous people who genuinely love the Lord and seek to obey him, and yet, as we saw, there is this lifelong trial that they've been walking through of childlessness. Elizabeth, to this point, has been unable to have a child, and now they are both advanced in years to the point that we're to understand that from a human perspective, medically, the, the possibility of bearing a child for Elizabeth have passed. has passed. That sets up a second scene in verses 8 to 17, the announcement this is the scene we left off in the middle of last time. Let me just remind you of what we've seen so far quickly. There are several details that make up this larger scene. The first details in verses eight to 10 that we've called a providential assignment a providential assignment. Zacharias is at the temple serving for what would be one of only two weeks in the entire year that he would have had the privilege to serve because there were so many priests and they had to cycle through who served. You only got to serve two weeks of the year. But during this week, he is chosen by the process of casting lots for the special responsibility of burning incense on the altar in the holy place. This was the furthest that a non high priest could go, getting right up to the veil that blocked the place where the Holy of Holies would have stood. This was, as we said last time, this was the Super Bowl, if you will, of priestly tasks. This was the height of his career. They only had this opportunity, some never had this opportunity, but you were only allowed to have this opportunity one time in your entire career. If the lot fell to you, you would be taken from the lot in the coming years and never have the opportunity to do this special task again. This is a big deal, a providential assignment that God chose Zacharias on this week of all weeks, on this day of all days, to go into the temple and to burn incense. It brings us to a second detail that will prove to be really important next week. A prayerful crowd in verse 11. A prayerful crowd, this is most likely the evening offering of incense. Remember this happened twice a day, every day. And typically the hour of prayer would coincide with the evening offering of the sacrifice and the incense inside the the temple. And so a crowd of worshipers are there. They would have been outside the temple praying, waiting for Zacharias to come out of the temple, pronounce the Aaronic blessing over them, And then there would be other aspects of the sacrifice that would follow. But the idea is there is this crowd of what will be witnesses waiting on Zacharias to come out of the temple. This led us then to detail number three. We only made it halfway through detail number three. We'll finish detail number three today. An angelic announcement in verses 11 to 17. Let me read verses 11 to 13 again. This is where we left off. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Now Zacharias is understandably startled, in fact I would say he's terrified, it says he's gripped with fear as all of us would be if an angel literally appeared before us, especially on this day of all days in the most sacred moment of his life as he is intently focusing on this task that's been given to him, an angel appears to him standing at the right side of this altar. As we mentioned last week, this is especially important because this Divine message from the angel is breaking a 400 year period of silence. God has not spoken to the people of Israel through a prophet or an angel for 400 years since the ministry of Malachi. And so this is a significant moment to say the least. He even goes on to tell Zacharias that he will have a son and that God's chosen beforehand the name of the child, the boy is to be named John or Yahweh, has been gracious. And he tells John, your petition has been heard. Now, what petition? We talked about this last time. Clearly, it at least involves the petition of a child, which is mentioned here, but it was more likely a reference to what Zacharias just prayed before the altar of incense, which would have been a prayer historically for the salvation of Israel, for the coming of Messiah. This is... This is a moment in which the angel is saying more than just a personal prayer for this couple has been answered. No, God is going to answer at the same time a personal request for a child, but in that a national request, really a worldwide request for the Redeemer to come. Now that leaves us where we left off last time. Picking up in verse 14, our task this morning will be to unpack verses 14 to 17 and the rest of this angelic announcement. Let's read our verses together. Luke 1, 14 to 17. The angel is still speaking here. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord Now at this point in the angel's description, he begins to give us several crucial aspects about this child that is to be named John. And we're going to slow down a little here and look at these, because the, this really is the heart of this account. If we miss these details, we miss the significance of what John came to do. And here's the first aspect that we need to understand about this man, John. We'll call it the joy over his birth. The joy over his birth. Look back at verse 14. You will have joy and gladness. Zacharias, you're going to have joy and gladness. I I love how personal this statement is. God takes time. God's doing something here that goes far beyond Zacharias and Elizabeth, and yet still he is concerned for this one individual man, and he tells him, Zacharias, you're going to rejoice. You're going to have joy. Of course, Elizabeth would have joy as well, as we'll see next week. But this is personally going to be a blessing to you. But I think also, even for Zacharias, the joy is meant to be twofold, course they're going to have the joy of having a child if you have a child you know the joy of that but much more than that they're going to have the joy of having a child that's going to prepare the way for messiah which means they're going to have the joy of seeing the messiah the one they've waited for all of that's going to come through the joy of this precious child and because of that they won't be alone in their joy listen to verse 14 you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. This is going to be a a cause for, for many to rejoice, really national rejoicing, even worldwide rejoicing, rejoicing that should carry on even into today at the announcement of the birth of this child As others hear of Elizabeth's pregnancy and they hear of the angelic announcement to Zacharias and what it means, understanding the significance of what the angel's about to say, it will produce joy and rightfully so. But here's the reason. Why will it be such an occasion for joy? Well, aspect number two about this man John is the affirmation of his calling. And here we really get into the details of the significance of John, the affirmation of his calling. Here's why you're going to rejoice, Zacharias, beginning in verse 15. The first reason for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now if you think about it, just take yourself out of the story of John for a moment and just think about a proclamation here of an angel saying that a man is going to be great. Hopefully you understand from your own life, none of us are great in and of ourselves. There's only been one truly great from birth, that is Jesus himself, greatest in the truest sense. And so for the angel to say this divine pronouncement of greatness, we have to understand here the sovereign grace of God. John is not going to be great because he's going to merit that greatness and God's going to attribute it to him based on his actions. God's declaring he will be great because I will see to it that he will be great. I've set him apart to be great. I will make him great. This is gracious kindness of God. This is a, an example of the sovereign choice of God of John to play this very special role. But also we can't underestimate the word great. We can't just read over that he will be great because the greatness of John the Baptist goes to an extent that really is probably further than we've imagined. And we know that because Jesus himself testifies to John's greatness in this way. Listen to how Jesus describes the greatness of John. Luke 7, 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's the voice of Jesus declaring that John is the greatest up until that time, up until John's birth, he was the greatest of all who have been born. And yet Jesus goes on to say, yet, He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's a somewhat odd statement. Let me explain it just for a moment. First of all, in the first half of that statement, Jesus is saying that John really would be the last Old Testament prophet. When you think of John's ministry, John is an Old Testament prophet in the sense that, if, yes, he appears in the New Testament uh, passages, but he functioned like an Old Testament prophet. He functioned under the old covenant declaring the coming of Messiah. Whereas Jesus would come as a prophet after him, of course, fulfilling the old covenant and ushering in the new. John would be the last to function as an old truly Old Testament prophet. And in that sense, he would be the greatest of them all. He would be the one who would have the the privilege that all the prophets would have loved to have to be the one to, to see and to identify and prepare the way literally for the Messiah. All the prophets longed for the Messiah, but John the Baptist got the privilege to be that prophet. Therefore, he was the greatest of all the prophets, and yet... Jesus would come preaching that through him, by faith and repentance in him, we could become citizens of God's kingdom. And what he's saying is every citizen of my kingdom that has come by faith and repentance enjoys something greater than even John enjoyed. We have eternal life by grace in the Messiah. But the point of reading that passage and reading Jesus' words is to highlight the fact that when the angel says he will be great, John was truly great. Until the coming of Christ, remember all eyes were on John. Everyone was even wondering, is this the Messiah? Who is this guy? Because the ministry of John was powerful and it was exactly meant to be just that. Now it brings us to the next attribute of his calling or his qualifications. He goes on to describe here in verse 15, Not only will he be great in the sight of the Lord, says he will drink no wine or liquor. The word liquor there could be translated as really any alcoholic beverage that doesn't come from the fruit of the vine. Sometimes it's translated strong drink, it could be translated beer, but really it's just alcohol not from the fruit of the vine. What you have to understand here when you read that statement is that in the culture at the time, It was not really a question as to whether or not you would drink wine. This was normal everyday life. Uh, Remember, even the water itself was not that that great to drink. That's why Paul would go on to tell Timothy, mix your water with some of your wine to help purify that. Wine was a staple. This is what you did. And this was a huge part of their culture. They grew grapes. They were they had harvest festivals. They would come around. It was a joyous occasion to harvest the grapes and to make that uh, the juice into wine. So, understand you have to put yourself in that context. It wasn't it wasn't like it is today, where not everyone drinks, and that's fine. You don't have to. Um, a Christian can drink in moderation. The scripture is clear about that. But put yourself in this culture where it was just a given, you're going to drink alcohol because that's what everyone does. So to abstain from that stands out, it's different. And God capitalizes on this throughout the Old Testament scripture and he uses abstinence from alcohol as a way to point everyone's attention to a person who's serving in a very unique way. This happens with the priests. In Leviticus chapter 10 verses 9 and 11 says the Lord then spoke to Aaron saying do not drink wine or strong drink neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. That's a pretty good motivation not to do that right. He's saying when you're on duty when you're serving in the temple and the tabernacle don't drink. Because you don't want to have your your senses in any way dulled. You want to obey what I have called you to do to the letter. Of course, we know a couple of Aaron's sons don't do that. And they do, in fact, die because of that. Another way that that a non-priest... Could take up this mantle of not drinking for the purpose of being separated unto God for a special purpose would be what's called the Nazarite vow. And number six, you could take a personal vow that for a time I'm going to set myself apart. The Nazarite vow is outlined like this. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that's produced by the grapevine from the seeds, even to the skin. Also the Nazarite vow would add that you could not touch a dead body and you could not cut your hair during that time. My point is to abstain from alcohol, was often connected with a special purpose of being set apart and consecrated to God. But here's the key difference. Both for the priests and the Nazarite, those were temporary separations. The idea is the priest was free to drink alcohol in moderation when not on duty serving and the Nazarite would come to the end of his vow, finish that vow and would resume normal life. Only in, in two other cases in scripture is a person said to be um, abstinent from alcohol from birth for their life. That is in the case of Samson and Samuel. So to be set apart from drinking alcohol from the womb was to take this, this idea of being set apart from, for God for a special service to a whole new level. This is a whole new thing. Uh, many would say John the Baptist was probably a Nazarite. I think that's probably true. It's probably a lifelong vow as a Nazarite, but we can't be sure of that because the other prohibitions aren't mentioned. But we know at least that uh, John dressed in a very strange way. We'll read about that later. And that he abstained from drinking alcohol for the entirety of his life because it was to get the attention of the people. If you were a Jew at the time and you understood that this man was abstinent from alcohol from the womb, everyone would know what that meant. It would mean this guy's claiming to be a prophet. This guy's claiming to be something special set apart to God for a special reason. Was another key component of his calling Not only would he be great in the sight of the Lord and abstain from alcohol, it goes on in verse 15 to say, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now this is significant. We we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit all the time. If you're a believer, indeed you are filled with the Spirit, baptized into the Spirit, have the Spirit of God working within you as a new creation. But understand in the Old Testament, The Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals for certain sacred tasks. Remember in the case of the kings, for example, Spirit of God initially comes on Saul, Saul disobeys God, the Spirit of God leaves Saul, and then David is anointed and the Spirit of God comes upon David. There are people who are uh, consecrated for special tasks and the Spirit is said to come upon them for those tasks. Samson, you remember, the Spirit of God would rush upon him and he would perform some miraculous deed of strength. This is how the Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit coming upon someone for a special purpose. But here, notice when is the Holy Spirit going to come upon John? While in the womb. That is the Spirit is going to anoint and equip John, set him apart for this special task, even in the womb for the entirety of his life. This is much rarer. Even. It was rare to read of these moments when the spirit came upon someone for a special purpose. It was exceedingly rare to read of the spirit coming upon someone from birth. Isaiah 49, one says, this will be true of the Messiah. He says, listen to me, O islands and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. I believe there in context. He's speaking of the Messiah set apart from the womb. Of course, we know that's true. Jeremiah said to be consecrated from birth in Jeremiah 1 4 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. But here we see John is in rare company. He's set apart in the womb, filled with the Spirit, equipped and anointed for this special task. Now remember, Zacharias has already been described to us as being a godly man. He knows the scriptures. So as he's hearing these descriptions of the calling of John and these things that he will do, not drinking alcohol, great in the eyes of the Lord, filled with the spirit in the womb, trust me, Zacharias knew what the angel was saying. Your son's gonna be a prophet. He's gonna be set apart for a special role unto God but he may not yet know which prophet John's going to be, but he's about to. Because the angel continues to get even more specific here with aspect number three, the purpose of his ministry. What would he be set apart to do? What would make him so different? Well, look at what the passage says now in verse 16. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. The primary purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was to call the people of Israel to repent. He called the people to repent that they would have hearts prepared for the coming of Messiah. Notice that this is not a promise that every person in Israel will repent. It says he will turn many back, but not all. Like so many prophets before him, John is sent to a rebellious people a people living in obstinate, hard-hearted sin to give a clarion call, repent, and return to the Lord. This was John's ministry. But understand that even John, not not just his message, but his, his ministry itself and who he was, his role was a fulfillment of prophecy itself. Prophecies had already been made about John and what he would do specifically in the book of Malachi and the book of Isaiah. And now the angel is going to quote directly from those prophecies so that Zacharias and you and I today know exactly the prophet John was meant to be. This is now in verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah. Now there's a lot packed of Old Testament prophecy packed into that little line there. Zacharias' ears are ringing now. He's understanding who John is going to be and hopefully ours will be ringing by the time we're done with this message. But I want you to put yourself in Zacharias' shoes for a moment, picture yourself there in the room You've just burned the incense on the altar. A literal angel is here speaking to you and you're trying to absorb all that he's saying. You've just found out one, you're gonna have a son which you've wanted your whole life. But now you're finding out that this is not just any ordinary son. He's gonna play this special role. And now you hear these words that he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now let's break that down because Zacharias knew immediately what that was a reference to. First of all, the word forerunner in your Bible is probably in italics, hopefully it is, because it's not actually in the Greek text, although it's an appropriate word to describe the role that John would play. And this first half of the sentence, this idea of John going beforehand and playing the role of a forerunner, comes from a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 40, verses three to five. Verse three says, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now with those words, Isaiah foretells of a time and when a, when a prophet will come, the prophet here is the voice, a voice calling. He's calling out for the preparation of the way for the king, for the Messiah. He would go forth as a forerunner. What's a forerunner? Obviously within the word, we picture someone running ahead, but to do what? Well, it comes from a historical word in which literally as kings would be preparing to enter into a new city, a forerunner would go out to literally prepare the way. You understand that the terrain is rugged the terrain is rough it's not like I-35 out here and so a team would go out and literally prepare the way that means that certain hills would have to be leveled to become low certain low spots would have to be brought up so that a literal road a safe path could be made for the king to come into that town that's what Isaiah means here this is the word picture let every valley be lifted up every mountain and hill be made low, let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. The idea is let there be a path made for his coming, prepare the way and literally the forerunner would go and do that. He would obviously herald, proclaim that the king was coming but it also physically make a path for the king to, to, to arrive on. You may not realize this but a similar practice is still very much in operation today in the United States there is an office in the White House called the Office of Scheduling and Advance. And their entire job is to plan the route and the movements of the president when he visits different places. So for example, when you see the president waving to the crowd in the Olympics, especially if that's in a foreign country, there's been a team on the ground for over a month literally planning every roadway and every stop and every seat that the president will sit in before he ever gets there to make sure that he's safe and he gets where he needs to go. That's the idea here of a forerunner. This was John's mission except he wasn't preparing the way for the president and he wasn't preparing the way for just a human king. Who exactly was John preparing the way for? Well, here it's wrapped up in a simple pronoun, verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. So, who does him refer to? Is the idea. The entire context of the Old Testament stands behind that word him as being the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. John wasn't the forerunner of a human king, a merely human king, but of the God-man Jesus Christ, the redeemer whose promise goes all the way back in scripture to Genesis 315 and goes beyond that into eternity past and the mind of God when he planned the plan of redemption. It was this Him that John would come to proclaim and to prepare the hearts of men to receive. But not only was he a forerunner, Allah Isaiah 40. The end of this verse as well would have piqued Zacharias' attention, because it says it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now the mention of Elijah would immediately told Zacharias who this boy was to be. We read this last week, but remember... 400 years ago was the last time that God has spoken to his people through a prophet. And what was the last thing, the very last thing that God said to them before he was quiet for 400 years? He says this in Malachi four verses five to six, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now before we dive into this prophecy of Elijah's coming, let me just say a quick word about prophecy in general so we don't get confused here. God chose in his wisdom to give us prophetic glimpses progressively over time. What that means is he didn't tell us all the way back in Genesis, all of the details of everything that was going to happen. He began to give us little shadows, little snippets of things that were to come. And we, as we progress through the scriptures, the image of what's coming, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. But the truth is we don't see the prophecy in its full clarity until it happens, till it's on the scene right in front of us. One of the aspects of the coming of Messiah that God chose not to reveal clearly, it's in the scripture, but not to say definitively clearly in a way that everyone was fully on the same page is the fact that the Messiah would come not once, but twice. Instead, we see descriptions of what we now know was his first coming, and we see descriptions of what we now know will be his second coming, but often those descriptions of his first and second coming are in the same verse right after each other, so it's hard to pull them apart until it happens, and then we understand, oh, there were two, and he accomplished these things in his first coming. That means he'll accomplish these things in his second coming. I bring that up because even here in in Malachi's prophecy, There are descriptions of the great day of the Lord, the final judgment of God that will come with the second coming. But there are also descriptions of this Elijah coming to prepare the way. Now, what I want us to see here is clearly the angel sent from God identifies John as this Elijah that would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. 400 years before it happens. Now you can imagine the Jewish people and the conversations of devout Jews over the last 400 years, when the last thing that God said was that Elijah would come, what kinds of conversations would they have had? Who is this? Is this actually Elijah? Remember, Elijah was taken to heaven, right? He was taken to heaven without actually dying, so they they may have legitimately thought maybe Elijah, physically, it's going to be actually Elijah. And others may have said no, but maybe one like Elijah. Well, here we're told that John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not Elijah himself, as John would actually testify, he was not actually Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. What does that mean? Well, think about the ministry of Elijah. Elijah ministered in a time in Israel's history when the people were given over to idolatry. You remember the names Ahab and Jezebel? It was under that wicked rule of Ahab with his wicked wife Jezebel that Elijah's ministry carried out. This is why on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18, you have this face-off. You remember the famous face-off between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and they're calling down fire and the prophets of Baal go all day long and nothing happens. And then immediately after soaking the altar with water, when Elijah prays, fire falls immediately from heaven. This is that Elijah. So Elijah's ministry was one of calling the people back to God through repentance, but also a boldness, a tenacity about Elijah in which he went toe to toe with the king and his wicked wife and all the prophets of Baal when no one stood beside him and he declared the truth of the one true God. John the Baptist would come with a similar spirit And when we see the preaching of John, we can hear the tenacity and the boldness of Elijah ringing through his words. Let me remind you of one of the things he said in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Listen to this. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now listen to this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now those are powerful words for any preacher, but this preacher is preaching to the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the political leaders of Israel, calling them to repent. Calling them out and saying your righteousness is nothing but an outward veneer and you think because you are, are by blood a child of Abraham that you have a hope of salvation and he says I'm here to tell you one's coming after me that's a judge of the heart and he will cut down your tree and burn you in eternal fire unless you repent and believe. Now that's tenacity, is it not? He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to preach a gospel of repentance and to prepare the way of the Lord, preaching eternal salvation to those who repent and eternal punishment to those who rebel. And just in case John's preaching is not enough to convince you along with the angelic announcement that he is the one that would come in the spirit of Elijah and fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4, Listen again to the words of our Lord. This conversation, by the way, in Matthew 17, happens as Jesus is walking down from the transfiguration. He's just been transfigured in the eyes of of three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they're having this discussion. His disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. It's understandable that this would have been in their minds. They're coming off the Mount of Transfiguration. They just saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah. So they're coming down and they're thinking, oh yeah, Malachi, Malachi, Elijah's supposed to come first. They're, they're fully convinced that Jesus is Messiah. So now they're saying what a, to explain the prophecy of Elijah. And he says, Elijah has come in the person of John. Now, what exactly did John's ministry come to, to do, to accomplish? Well, that's outlined for us here. This is a direct quote also from Malachi. We read it earlier in the middle of verse 17. He's gonna be a forerunner to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Now, there, honestly, there's a lot of debate about exactly what this means, but I think in context, it means exactly what it says. There are inevitably rifts in family relationships when we're living in sin in both the context of Malachi and in the context of John's ministry they come at a time in which the people are living in rebellion and it was affecting even family relationships. John would come back, would come to preach repentance. Those who repented would would have the the gift of restoration. Families would be restored because of the repentance that would come from the ministry of John. But not only that, it says he would go on to uh, preach in the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. That is, the disobedient would repent and turn to the attitude of the righteous. Real repentance would take place through the ministry of John and that repentance would evidence itself in righteous living. And so here we come to the final phrase of John's ministry description here. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord you want to put in a nutshell what John's ministry did it made a people ready not roads and highways people were made ready that is the hearts of men were the task the hearts of men were the highway that John came to level and he came to level that highway of the hearts of men through the preaching of the gospel of repentance, turn back to the one true God and look to him in anticipation for the coming of Messiah because the kingdom of God is at hand. That was John's ministry. This was a people prepared beforehand. Jesus would go on to say that this people was a people that God the Father had given to him. In John 10 verses 20 to 29, He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father, here's the picture, in eternity past, the father gives a gift of men to the son who will be redeemed by the son, John the Baptist comes preaching a gospel of repentance, preparing the hearts of those who would come to know Christ. Christ comes preaching the gospel, revealing himself and those who have ears to hear, hear and run to the voice of the shepherd. Even today, we have sheep here who through the preaching of the gospel have heard the voice of the shepherd and have recognized that's my shepherd and have come to him to receive his grace. Something stuck out to me that uh, has, I've missed the significance of in, in reading this passage over and over again that just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. You remember in Jesus's ministry, towards the end of his ministry, several different segments of the religious leaders come to test him with questions or trying to trap him so that they can have a legitimate reason to, to put him to death. One of those instances comes in Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27, listen to this. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So they're challenging Jesus to describe why he has the right to come in and turn over tables and to preach in the, in the temple. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet. And and answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now understand, it's easy to read that account and, and think that all that's happening is Jesus is beating them at their own game. They ask him a question to trap him in front of the people. He turns the question around on them and asks them something they can't answer, showing that he's smarter and wiser. He outfoxes the fox, so to speak. Well, that is true, that's, that's what he actually does, but that's not the motivation. Why of all the questions he could have asked as he asked them, when asked about what what gives you the authority to do this, why does he say, tell me about John? It's because if you reject the forerunner who was destined by God to come and prepare the way for me, you will not believe in me. His authority had already been established by his own ministry, but also by the mouth of the prophet that they supposedly had been waiting for for 400 years to prepare the way. If you miss the way prepared, you miss the Messiah. That same truth hangs in the air amongst us today. How will we respond to this ministry of the man known as John the Baptist? I think it's clear now, hopefully you see God's gone above and beyond to make it clear to us that John the Baptist is the prophet prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied by Malachi to prepare the way for the Messiah. The reason that this voice, this clarion call in the wilderness gets muffled and misunderstood is because our ears are clogged with sin, our eyes blinded by sin, our hearts Dead in sin understand you cannot cling to the idols of your heart and also have the savior Jesus made it very clear Matthew 16 if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will, it gain, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is why the good news of the gospel has to start where the ministry of John started. Why did John come preaching repentance? It's because this is where the good news comes. The good news comes after the bad news, which is the fact that all of us are rebels against a holy God. All of us are sinners who deserve nothing from the hand of God, except his eternal wrath. What we need is to humble ourselves in repentance, turning from our sin to the savior and putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as our only hope. The Bible says Jesus by his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection is the only hope we have. If you will come today heeding the call of John and the call of Jesus to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, you will be saved. But don't believe the lie that you can have your sin and have the Savior too. The road of your heart has to be prepared by repentance. Turn from sin and put your faith in Christ alone. Now if you're a believer this morning, we ought to respond to this passage in exactly the way that the passage says. There are really three things. Number one, rejoice, rejoice our hearts and our voices should join Zacharias and Elizabeth and the crowd of witnesses and the many who have been rejoicing through the ages that the forerunner has come preparing the way for Messiah which means Messiah has come. Jesus truly is the Messiah. Rejoice not just at the birth of this man, John the Baptist, but of the the marvelous grace of God that is contained in this message that the forerunner has come and therefore the Messiah has come. Rejoice in the fact that we serve a God who loves us, who provides redemption for us. Rejoice in the fact that God has chosen to make it clear through real historical events and even signs and wonders, real signs and wonders that God has done to testify, this is my messenger, John, and this is my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom he testified. This is a call to rejoice. It's also a call to repent. To call for us to repent. The initial call to salvation is a call to repentance and faith. And salvation is a done deal. Once a person repents and believes they are justified, they are saved, but that ushers in now a life of repentance. And the truth is we can become lax in our pursuit of Christ and our pursuit of righteousness. Let me ask you, Christian, have you gotten too comfortable in the Christian life Have you begun to tolerate things in your character that you know God hates? Have you turned the grace of God into a license for sin? As Paul warns us in Romans. The ministry of John has reminded us that a heart prepared for Messiah is a heart prepared by repentance. So for us as believers, this call to repentance is not a call to come and repent for salvation, that's already happened, but it is a call to live a lifestyle of repentance, one in which we truly let our sin go, we put it to death, and we cling to the Savior. And then finally, believe, believe. I believe that God would have our faith to be strengthened this Christmas season through this story. If you're a believer, you already believe these things, but may you believe them even more firmly, even more deeply to the point that it causes us to open our mouths, to proclaim them to others. As the voice of the fallen world gets louder and louder, mocking God and his word, may our faith go deeper and deeper in these truths. And may we stand the way that John stood boldly faithfully, following God himself, calling others to do the same. What a savior we serve. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this clear passage that just reminds us of how meticulous you have been in fulfilling your word down to every letter, every detail. You've left no rock unturned. And we have faith because of that, that every other prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled just as meticulously as we await now for the second coming of our Savior. God, this morning I realize there is likely some among us who have not yet come to know you truly. God, I pray that you would call them to repentance through the word today. And that you would give them the ability to repent and believe and turn to Jesus Christ for true salvation. For those of us in Christ, help us to take sin seriously, to take the Christian life seriously, and to now live a life of repentance. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that you are worthy of our trust and our faith. We thank you for your grace not to leave us in our sins, but to rescue us through your Son.